Podcastle, episode 254, April 3rd, 2013. This week's story, Sunday, by Matt Wallace. Let's face it, I was going to turn up here sooner or later. For those of you not familiar with me, I'm Alistair. I host Pseudopod, I co-host Escapepod, and I once helped Dave and his family take down some particularly gnarly s'mores. And speaking of Dave's family, massive congratulations to him and Emma for the latest addition to Team Thompson. They're two of the nicest people I've ever met, and when Dave asked for some help, I was more than happy to step up. Especially for a story I kind of championed. Matt Wallace is a genius. He's also an ass-kicker of the first water. Matt's a former pro wrestler, a martial arts polymath, and a relentlessly, endlessly, diversely talented writer. His Failed Cities monologues is about to see a long overdue and immensely deserved hardcover release, and I know a little bit about the stuff he has planned for later in the year. It's going to be amazing. Don't believe me? Matt is one of the only people in the world to put words in the mouth of Brian Mills from Taken and live. He's just that badass. Last year, Matt released several stories as singles through Kindle as an experiment to see if the audience was there. It was, and when I read this one, I proceeded to beat the drum as loudly as I could to get that audience to grow. That included being polite, British, and relentless at the assembled escape artists' editors, and the end result is landing this story here. So, Podcastle is very proud to present Sunday, written by Matt Wallace, and originally published for Kindle through the sheer force of his unbreakable will. Find Matt on Twitter, before he finds you, at MattFNWallace or at MattWallace.com, that's M-A-T-T hyphen Wallace.com. Your reader this week is also a genius, the incomparable Dave Robison. Along with Brian, Dave presents the Writer's Roundtable, a podcast which is a different writer aboard every week to workshop a story with the help of Dave, Brian, and a rotating guest host. It's brilliant. It's one of the most positive, affirming experiences an author can have, as they, and their guest, pull the story apart not just to see it die, but see it reborn. They make good writers great, and it's been my privilege to work with them twice. Do please check them out if you can. But before that, check your weapons, stand your ground, prepare for the good fight, and enjoy the story. Sunday, One Bear's Epic Crusade Through Childhood By Matt Wallace The old woman in the wheelchair has a brutal face and hands as soft as the mother of all children. You will be more than a warrior, little one, she whispers in German, her delicate and wrinkled fingertips sewing a pressed metal button into his left ear. You will be a guardian. You will protect more than tender flesh and frail bodies. You will be the sentinel that stands between the darkness and innocence itself. With eyes made of glass and wood, he sees her thin, withered lips form the words. He cannot hear her. His ears, even the one with the signature button, were not made to hear, just as his mouth was not made to speak. However, the small, stuffed bear finds he understands her, the meaning of her words, if not the words themselves. 
The button is warm in his ear, and that's when the bear realizes he can feel. The warmth in the button begins to fill the rest of his tiny, stitched-together body, imbuing the fluff that fills it with sensation for the first time. It causes a shudder to ripple through the bear's alpaca hide. Yes, the old woman says with a smile, you feel, you understand, that is life. You are alive now. The old woman lifts him up and sits him against a large spool of twine on her work table. The bear finds he can move his stubby arms and legs now, but it's slow in coming. This life I have given you, it is for a purpose. Already you know what it is, yes? The stuffed bear does feel the pull, the invisible tether drawing him toward the dark corners where fear takes horrifying shape. I lost mine kinder to the monsters. I found each one in their cribs, still and cold. Doctors, men of science, told me this ill thing simply happens. But I knew. I could see what they did not. I could see because I never stopped believing. Perhaps it was being stricken so young and bound to this chair, kept from much of the world. Always I was treated by adults as less than they, treated as a child. It kept me innocent, in a sense. And so I knew, I saw the monsters, and I vowed that though I could bear no more children, I would find a way to give birth to the Savior of children. That is you, little one, you and your brothers and sisters." The bear moves for the first time, then, of its own accord, turning its small brown-furred head to look behind the old woman. The walls of the workshop are lined with shelves. Each one is filled with stuffed elephants and monkeys. Magda Stenza and her brother Klaus have been making them by hand for decades. Their newest and most popular creation is the teddy bear. Her brother, younger and stronger and skilled in leatherworks and carpentry, makes the trunks. Each stuffed animal sold by the Stenza Company comes in its own perfect miniature steamer trunk. Each trunk is covered with stamps from faraway places and features hand-painted mosaics of foreign locales. A Stenza animal is meant for high adventure and exotic travel, as are the children to whom they are given. Such a trunk is awaiting the bear upon whom Magda has bestowed form and new life. You will travel far and save many, the old woman assures him. Your journey will be long, your battles countless and hard fought. Remember always you were created in love and hope, and that you labor to preserve both. You are the Savior. Perhaps the greatest warrior the world had ever known was entombed in a brown cardboard box in the attic. The box was scrawled Kenny's Room in bright red sharpie pen and stuffed into a dust-covered corner one spring cleaning with several others. Some contained toys the children had outgrown. 
Others contained electronics that were working, but hopelessly out of date. All of them were quickly forgotten about. Inside the cardboard box filled with other unwanted toys, Sunday lay in his miniature steamer trunk. The trunk's once fine leather was cracked and peeling all over, its many stamps painted with their images of postcard lands dulled and faded by age. Sunday himself had not fared much better through the years. It had been almost a century since he was created in Magda's workshop. One of his eyes was missing, and the tear left by its departure had been sewn shut to keep the fluff from leaking out. A large patch of fur covering his right breast and shoulder was dark and brittle. He'd taken a tumble into a roaring fireplace while grappling with a particularly nasty beast back in the seventies. The cover he'd fashioned from leather scraps for his left ear to protect the pressed metal button that was the source of all Stenza Bear's power looked worn and awkwardly stapled on. There were other punctures and tears and rips. Some had been sewn like his eye, some closed hastily with masking tape that was now brown and furling at the corners. Although most would look on him as a broken toy, Sunday viewed each point of damage as a battle scar. The more severe the wound, the more honor it bestowed, and the more it enriched him as a warrior. Magda was right. His journey had been long, and he'd fought more battles than any sane being could count. Now he would rest. His time, and that of all the stuffed guardians of the world, had passed. A strong, rough hand removed him from his miniature leather steamer trunk for the first time and placed him in an empty crib. The nursery that surrounded it was white and clean and new. The crib did not remain empty for long. Early one grey morning the master and mistress of the house brought their first-born son home and placed him beside the stuffed bear. He was the first real child the bear had ever met, and at first he was unsure of the creature. It was a squealing thing, ugly and shrill. Yet... When its eyes registered the bear, they widened just so, and the babe ceased its noise. In silence, the child's face took on a purity and beauty unseen by his glass eyes. Impossibly small hands, softer than his own fur, stroked at the bear, and in that moment he knew the love the old woman had spoken about. He knew he would die to protect this perfect little thing from the darkness and all its evils. Night came. Adults slumbered in their beds, leaving the babe alone in that darkness for the first time. The child didn't understand the dark and was afraid of it. The bear found he could feel the child's fear impregnating those shadowy corners. He felt what started to grow there, gestating, feeding on the wild, invisible waves of panic and terror streaming from the baby in its crib. Something rumbled inside the bear, something being called. The darkness, without knowing it, was summoning him to battle, and the fight would come soon. 
A large, dark mass slithered apart from the rest of the shadows in the corner of the nursery. It had no real form. The child was new, its mind simple and without imagination. It knew only raw emotion, terror, without any name or shape. The monster reflected that, becoming little more than a hungry, gelatinous mouth, ready to swallow the babe's life essence whole. The bear also found he could move more than his head now. His limbs, his entire small body was his to command. More than that, he felt heavier, more solid. It was as if the fluff inside him was hardening in that moment, like muscles tensing to perform difficult labor. He leapt up onto the rail of the crib, wobbling and almost toppling to the floor after the unpracticed motion. The master of the house had hung a mobile above the crib, a circle of thick wire from which tinker toys of various shapes hung and swayed. The bear reached up and yanked down the mobile, snapping it free of the string that tethered it to the ceiling. He leapt from the rail, landing atop the monstrous blob as it rolled toward the crib. The creature bucked with surprising speed, hurling the bear against the wall of the nursery. He bounced onto the floor, scrambling to recover his chosen weapon. The monster turned its mass from the crib to face him, and the small bear recovered to meet his first quarry head on. The beast lumbered forward, rearing up and preparing to crush the bear under its bulk. The stuffed bear waited, still and calm, until the monster leapt at him. Then he thrust himself to one side, looping the mobile around the top of the monster's body as he jumped up to straddle it once again. Tightening his grip, the bear jerked his body backwards. The wire began slicing through the shapeless mass of the creature's form. Tinker toys popped from their ringlets and rained down on the floor of the nursery. The creature ceased its thrashing a split second before its top portion separated from the rest with a long, wet, popping sound. Both halves splattered on the floor around the bear. He stood over the splayed carcass of his first kill, the mobile's wire hoop still clutched in one paw. A slimy residue dripped heavily from it, like necrotic blood. There was no sense of pride or elation in that first victory. The bear's only thought was that the child was safe. That, and the old woman in her squeaking wheelchair, would be pleased with him. There was a vent in the attic near Sunday's cardboard box. He noticed that at night voices would flit through its rusty grate, too quiet for human ears to hear, but Sunday felt the words and their meanings. It was the master and mistress of the house, talking to one another in their bed. Something horrible had happened to their daughter, Taylor. Sunday remembered the girl. She never paid much attention to him, had even less need of his protection. Her face was buried in a handheld video game before she could read, and after she learned to read, Taylor was more interested in text messages than books. Sunday heard the adults speaking of her late at night in their bedroom. Taylor had been lured from their home by words with no voice, words spoken to her through a computer screen. 
The owner of those words had hurt Taylor in ways no child should ever be hurt. From what they said, she wasn't healing well, not in body, mind, or spirit. The master and mistress blamed themselves, but mostly they blamed the invisible world inside the computer and allowing Taylor to dwell so often and so unsupervised in it. There was a new baby in the house, another girl. They were going to raise her without all of that, it was decided. There would be no phones, no computer, not until she was old enough to make responsible decisions. They would no longer trust the television to rear her in their absence. They would raise her as they were raised, preserving her innocence for as long as they could. As much as Sunday longed for a return to such innocence, he knew how vulnerable it was. The nights sealed away in his trunk began to grow longer, and in them he found no rest. He worried for the girl, and what lie waiting for her in the shadows. It was Esther who gave him the name Sunday. She was the daughter of a chambermaid. After the children he'd protected for so many years grew beyond nurseries and playrooms, the mistress of the house instructed her servant to put all of their toys in a box and take them home to the woman's own children, who were younger. Esther had pulled him from that box and loved him fiercely and immediately. Her imagination was as broad and unyielding as her affection— Across a century and in dozens upon dozens of children, Sunday had never seen its equal. She liked to dress him in different outfits, a cowboy hat and vest with a gold star pinned to it, a rain slicker and galoshes, silver thread knight's armor. She concocted elaborate stories for them to act out. Sunday resented it at first, but slowly he began to enjoy their playtime. He found Esther could take them fantastic places without ever leaving her room. The drab walls would melt away, and the pair of them would be somewhere else. The colors were brighter than anything in nature. The creatures that populated these places were bright and jovial as well. Sunday also found he could speak. Esther believed it, and so he could. He told her about his adventures through the years, the great battles he'd fought and won. Esther confided in him her dreams of exploring the world and traveling to worlds beyond this one. She knew about the monsters, too. She wanted to fight them at his side, but Sunday told her she was too fine a dreamer to waste in battle. It was given to her to imagine only good things. So Sunday fought her monsters alone. They came when she slept. Sometimes they had the face of her father, distorted and hideous and screeching unintelligibly. More and more they began to resemble the old stone-faced patron of the house. He was an unpleasant man who despised Esther's daydreaming and yelled at her constantly. Sunday couldn't understand why. Then, one day, yelling turned to hitting. Soon after that, hitting turned to late-night visits to Esther's room, where the flat of the hand and the damage it could inflict was only the beginning. A thousand times Sunday wished, with every scrap inside of him, to rise up and defend her. But he was not made to fight the adults or things of the real world. He couldn't summon the strength, nor will himself, to solidify.
The more he could only watch, the more Esther ceased to believe, not only in Sunday, in everything. There were no more adventures in bright, faraway places. There were no more monsters. Esther's demons had become real, made towering, cruel flesh. She couldn't dream of a better world in the day, and Sunday could no longer protect her at night. It was a hard lesson for both of them. One day Esther gathered all her toys into a pile and set them ablaze. Sunday barely escaped. Her father sent her away after that. Sunday couldn't know where. It was weeks later when her mother placed whatever hadn't burned in a box and donated it to a local charity drive. He wondered for a long time, lying motionless in a bin in that dingy second-hand store, why Magda hadn't made him to fight the daylight evils that plagued children. It took years to occur to Sunday that perhaps, like him, the old woman wasn't made for such battles either. Evil was growing once again in the dark corners of the house. Sunday felt it before he had any tangible proof. He lay in his steamer trunk in the box in the attic, reminiscing, as old soldiers do, trying to ignore the gnawing in the fluff of his belly. The master and mistress of the house had named their new baby Harper. She was growing fast, and as she did they kept their vow to shelter her from the intangible worlds behind crackling screens and the voices that filled them. Sunday felt her fears at night, a floor beneath his resting place. He felt the darkness siphoning their potent energy and converting it into something sinister. Sunday found that not only could he feel it taking shape, the shape was familiar. Then, one night, the monster began whispering to him by name. Silver bound down the steps three at a time. He carried Sunday on his tawny back like a rider. There were two Velcro strips affixed to either side of the big Akita's spine. They held Sunday firmly in place by the fur of his thighs, as his small body was jarred and rocked by the motion of the dog, barreling at full speed over uneven ground. Their quarry shrieked horribly as it tried to evade the charge. Silver almost caught the monster on the turn at the bottom of the staircase, pouncing as it rounded the bend and snaked into the living room. The Akita recovered quickly and expertly from the near hit and took off like a shot across the living room rug. They were close now, just a few feet shy of the couch. The poker's handle was tucked firmly under Sunday's right arm. The paw of his other arm held it at half length, steadying it for the kill. Silver bore down on the monster inches from its flank, and Sunday struck. The pointed end of the fireplace poker skewered the beast under one of its many scales, plunging until the hooked prong of the poker caught on the thing's hide. The blow drove the monster flat against the ground. Sickly green blood spurted thickly, dousing them both. Silver reared back, and he and the beast, tethered by the poker, slid wildly across the hardwood floor and crashed into the living room wall. The collision tore Sunday's makeshift lance from the monster's corpse. Silver rolled away from the wall, pressing the bear's body twice before he righted them. 
Sunday still held the poker. Something that might have been a black, sludge-covered version of a heart was stuck on the end. Sunday peeled his stubby legs from the dog's torso, leaving more than a few strands of fur in the Velcro patches. He slid from the Akita's broad back and held up the poker. Silver sniffed at the entrails hanging from it and swung his maw away, snorting. If they were creatures made to laugh, the two would have shared one then. Silver had been little more than a puppy when the master and mistress of the house brought him home. But he grew fast, and he grew large and strong. He slept at the foot of the child's bed, and he and Sunday quickly bonded. Canines understood the mission of the bears. They served children the same way in daylight, out in the world of fleshy villains. Together, Sunday and Silver fought battles whispered about through decades to come. They protected two more of the master and mistress's children from the time of babes until they outgrew bears and dogs and monsters. They fought together until time, the ally of children and the enemy of Silver's kind, waged a war the two companions could not win. Sunday was with the old man at the very end. Silver lived through a stroke several weeks before. It left him a half-blind, wobbly-legged thing with a cloudy mind. The master and mistress spoke of putting him down. They didn't get the chance. It was late at night. Silver wandered into the upstairs bathroom to lie upon the cool tiles, knowing only that the sensation soothed his tired, aching bones. Sunday crept inside, violating his every instinct by leaving the child alone at night. But knowing his friend and comrade in arms should not be alone for this. Silver knew it was he, even if the old boy couldn't remember much of their adventures any more. Sunday pressed his muzzle into the brittle coat covering Silver's heart. He felt its life beat slow. Sunday's murky glass gaze held the dog's one still functioning eye. It was glazed and milky. But in that moment, Silver saw him, really saw him, and there was a deep spark of recognition. Then the heart that had slowed so drastically stopped altogether, and Silver was gone. They buried him in the backyard the next day. Sunday watched from the window of the child's room, remembering every prayer. Margaret had ever whispered over him as her wrinkled hands gave him life. He didn't know God as humans do, or even think they do, but he knew what prayers meant. He wanted that for his old friend. Sunday mourned him alone and in battle for a long time. He didn't realize Silver's death was a sign of things to come. He began to notice the change sometime after the images on the screen in the family room went from dreary black and white to bright colors. Once the children had kept Sunday with them as they watched, they sat on the carpet with his body cradled in the basket of their crossed legs, holding him the way children do. Suddenly he was left behind. The hours they spent staring at the screen grew longer. Eventually, he was not only left behind, he was forgotten.
his fur began to ache for the lack of their touch. It gave them something else to believe in, stories they didn't have to make up themselves. The monsters in these stories were tame and easily defeated. The source of it all grew brighter and louder and filled more and more of the world around them. Screens were everywhere, huge screens and small screens, and they all blasted the children every hour of every day with more than a tiny mind can hold. He heard the others complain, the army of stuffed warriors that used to be the focus of those early years in a child's life. They bemoaned these new generations of children who believed in nothing except what they were told, who traded their innocence earlier and earlier for truths no child need know so young. Sunday didn't mind, not even when he was finally packed away in the attic. The children were safe in their beds now, even if he sensed the world outside growing colder and more dangerous they were safe from the shadows. That place, the world outside, was never his domain. It was a world made of light where the monsters were flesh. Sunday was not made to combat flesh. He'd learned to accept that. But a part of him, deep beneath the alpaca hide that covered his breast where a human's heart would be, still longed for battle. It craved monsters to fight and defeat. That part never accepted the closed lid of a box, and it never would. You're in there, aren't you? A voice made of ground glass and chewed flesh whispered outside the cardboard box. Sunday knew it well. It belonged to a dragon. Dragons were one of the most common monsters. They were very hard to kill, and their memories lingered in the shadows, waiting to be passed on after their bodies had perished. They've forgotten you, old man. All of them out there have. They've forgotten us both. I'll have no more meals like this girl, I fear. I plan to savor it. I'm going to crush her soul between my teeth. I'm going to make her scream eternal. When those who bore her find her little body stiff and cold in its bed, they will see that scream carved into her eyes and the corners of her little mouth, and they'll always remember. They'll remember my great works, if not their author. <laughs> but you, old man... You are not but a bag of dust and weeds. You're a curio whose secrets no one will ever ponder. Lie in your little coffin and think about that. Lie in your little coffin and think in the endless nights to come of me. Then the voice and the old monster to which it belonged were gone. Sunday had known this night would come ever since the master and mistress of the house brought Harper home. Now 
He needed to become the part of himself that welcomed it, rather than the part that was wearied by it. He popped the lid of his steamer trunk from the inside with practiced ease. Sunday's paws pressed against the Velcro strips attached to the lining of the trunk's interior. Many human eyes had wondered who put those strips there and for what they might be used. None had ever seen the other side of the lining or the miniature arsenal housed there. He dissembled the private armory himself over the decades, honing each weapon as he honed his skills as a warrior and as a craftsman. There were tomahawks, their axe heads fashioned with everything from guitar picks to can lids. There was a bow bent from a sanded smooth oak twig and a quiver of silver fork-tong arrows. There'd been a fine shield Sunday halved from a Foster's beer can, but a leviathan-looking beast swallowed it in one of his last battles. The centerpiece of the arsenal was Sunday's broadsword. He drew it slowly from the tiny strap that held it in place. The blade was forged from an old Sanborn and Chase tea-tin. The S in the company's name was centered on the flat of the sharpened blade. Its handle and crossguard he'd carved from the toggle of a raincoat and wrapped with copper wire. Sunday felt the balance of the weapon, rotating it this way and that. Then, with sudden and inhuman speed, he thrust it through the inside of the box. It sliced through the cardboard with ease, cutting a hole large enough for Sunday to climb out. He popped the rusted vent in the wall and made his way from the attic to the second floor of the house. He remembered the bedroom well. It had belonged to Harper's sister and brother before her. The door had been left open a crack, as parents often do. Sunday gave it a shove with everything in his stuffed arm, and it swung wide before him. He stepped inside the darkened room. The old monster was hovering above her bed, scaly folds undulating inches from the blankets. It held itself there, suspended, sniffing at the hem of the covers like a hungry, rabid dog. Harper was a smart girl. Sunday had seen children younger than her keep legions of monsters at bay with their bed covers, just as Harper was doing now. There was an art to it. You had to know, not just believe, that you were safe when nestled under them. You had to be sure to tuck each edge and corner firmly under yourself, leaving no loose folds or openings for them to take advantage of. She'd done that, but the monster was wearing her down, whispering its poison words to shake her confidence. Sunday could hear Harper simpering under the blankets, beginning to cry. He raised his sword arm high and held the blade aloft. He began twirling it, and as he did, the sword sang a high, ringing song. It was the call to battle, elated and challenging, and promising to leave no opponent untested. The old monster heard it, and rotated its hideous form to face him. Its maw was that of the dragon. Razor-sharp talons, curved and jagged, and the length of knitting needles extended from claws made of the darkness itself. The small brown bear's remaining eye glinted in the stray moonlight. It shined a message. 
You'll not have her, it said. I am Sunday, slayer of monsters, and this child's sworn protector. And you'll not have her this night or any other. The old monster read his message clearly, and the deep hollows of its eyes, swirling a sickly green and a bloody red, seemed to shine back at him. They were hungry and pleased and eager for the battle. Sunday's quarry swooped down over the foot of the bed and broke upon him like a black wave. The force of it sent them both tumbling out of the bedroom door and through the bars of the staircase railing. Sunday squeezed harmlessly between two of them while the monster oozed around half a dozen. They careened down the steps, Sunday slashing and stabbing, and his enemy tearing chunks of fur and fluff from the bear's body with its claws. In the next moment, Sunday felt himself crushed against the hardwood floor of the foyer, his opponent atop him. The old monster knocked the sword from his hand with one vicious swipe. It flew into the living room and impaled the stalk of a potted plant. Sunday was helpless. He could barely move. The beast had him pinned down. "'I wished it this way,' the monster said in its rotting voice. "'More than anything, I wished it this way. "'The kill will be so much sweeter. "'Hers and yours.' Sunday yanked the protective cover from his ear and jammed that part of his head against the monster's dripping maw. His enemy thought nothing of it, only tasted the fur of his enemy. It clenched its jaws and tore the ear off, swallowing it whole, the signature Stenza Button included. It was spreading its hideous jaws for another bite when the old monster was seized. Its limbs locked in a deathly stasis, and its body went rigid. Sunday rolled from beneath it just as the beast came forth with the most horrifying screech any living thing had ever pushed out of its gullet. A blinding light suddenly shone from the darkness of the monster's core. The light of creation stitched into the ear of a small stuffed bear in the form of a pressed metal button. The light grew brighter and spread throughout the monster until its grotesque body burst like rancid fruit left in a blazing sun, lining the walls of the house with offal and entrails and sludgy viscous that no one but Sunday would ever be able to see. Sunday lay on his back, unable to move. Half of him was spread out over the stairs and the first floor of the house, more than that, the same light that had destroyed his opponent was now being extinguished inside of the bear himself. Like so many seeming hardships through the last century, he didn't mind. Sunday had known when he unsheathed his sword that it would be for the last time, whatever happened, and it was one time more than he'd planned. It felt good to be victorious, to be needed, and to be more than a broken, discarded toy. His creator had sown a permanent smile 
onto Sunday's light brown muzzle. He wore it when he fought. He wore it when he grieved. He wore it when time and the hearts of children seemed at their most cruel. At that moment, however, he wore it as sincerely as any creature has ever worn a smile. The last glimpse afforded Sunday's remaining eye was of Harper, a nothing of a silhouette melting into the wall at the top of the staircase, looking down on him. He hoped she knew it would be all right now. He hoped seeing her monster slain would carry her the rest of the way through these most innocent and frightening of years in peace. Sunday hoped for many things, for all of them, for the children and the guardians and those he'd fought beside and seen lain down by monsters or jaded children or simply by the passing of years. Then he became nothing more than a collection of stitched-up rags. In the morning, Harper's parents stepped on moldy bits of insulation and shredded patches of fur as they descended the steps of their home. They found the remains of an old teddy bear scattered in the foyer as if something with teeth and claws had ravaged it to pieces. It must have been rats or raccoons, they reasoned. The attic must be infested. They cleaned up and had the whole house fumigated. The incident was swept quickly from the front of little Harper's mind. In time, she would even remember an ornery rodent tearing up a stuffed animal on the stairs of her childhood home instead of a warrior battling to the death the monster of her nightmares. But a piece of that tattered toy and its battle to save her from the monster stayed with her. Years would pass, and Harper would grow tall and beautiful and wise. She would marry a kind man and give them both a son. Together they would bring the chubby little babe home and place him in a bassinet, where a stuffed bear was waiting to nestle him as he slept. And if you were to ask the woman, the mother Harper was to become, why she insisted that teddy bear have a button in its ear, no particular answer would occur to her, nor why she named her son's teddy bear Sunday. And welcome back. I love this story because I love what it represents. There's a unique strand of heroism which hits me right in the chest and it's wrapped up in this idea of the good death, of making your peace with what's happened to you and deciding that just because you are where you are doesn't mean you have to lay down and die. This is the moment of absolute peace Matthew Broderick talks about in The Graduate when he talks about the freedom inherent in being completely screwed. It's the way George Kirk smiles when he hears his son for the first and last time. It's death tapping you gently on your shoulder and telling you it's time to go. And you spitting on the ground and saying, not just yet, and bringing your hands back up. Because there is always work to do. There's always something to defend. And heroes like Sunday are the ones who always have to do it. An awful lot of abject bullshit is spewed about writing. 
Write what you feel, write what you know, work this way, obsessively check Goodreads this way. Always work for a set amount of money, always take any money you can get. Sit here, write that way, use this sentence, read this book, and it's all, all of it, without exception, useless. Most of the time, but we'll get to that. Write. Just write. It's in the damn word. Sit down and start writing. Plan if you want to. Rearrange your desk if you want to. Make a playlist if you must. But when it comes down to it, it's always, always you and the white page. And at the end of the day, if the page is still white, the page has won. Don't let the page win. Your creativity, your sense of self, your confidence are all, odds are, battered and crumbled and sewn back together. I'll let you into a secret. Mine are. I work constantly, and about half of what I do I'm paid for on a very, very good day. I recently finally had an invoice cleared for work I did five years ago, and had been too insecure and self-deprecating and too British to bother chasing. I didn't push. I didn't strive. I didn't show up for the fight. And then, one day, I did. And I won. Look at Sunday. Stand your ground. Look at Matt. Stand your ground. Matt threw his life in the back of a truck a couple of years ago and went to LA. He's got scripts being shopped around, he's picking up more and more work, and he never, never, not once, stopped moving forwards. Matt Wallace has fought and kicked and gouged for every single break he's got, and to my mind he's got maybe 10% of what he should. He doesn't complain about that, because that isn't the work, and when you do this it's always, always about the work, and protecting yourself enough to do it. As I write, as I talk to you, I'm waiting to hear back about a job. A full-time job. An office job. It's massively important to me because it's a job in publishing. It's one I'm experienced enough to do. It's with people I know and like and who know and like me and everyone I've talked to has told me I'm a strong candidate. You know what? It doesn't mean a damn thing. Because all it will take is three or four other people with better qualifications and I won't even get an interview. And I have to tell you, that's going to be hard to swallow. I've made my career one week at a time for years. And I'm only just getting to the point where things are starting to move. I'm not sure what's going to happen if I don't make it to interview. I don't know how long it's going to take me to bounce back. But I know I will. I'll have another scar, another wound that'll heal differently, but I'll get back up and I'll go looking for the next one, because that's what writers do, and any writer who doesn't have a little streak of Sunday of the hero to them, any writer who doesn't defend their ideas and their successes to the death and beyond, isn't deserving of the title. Plan if you want to, rearrange your desk if you have to, make a playlist if you must, but when it comes down to it, it's always, always you and the white page and your version of Sunday, holding off the doubt. Make sure they're fully armed, and then write, and don't ever stop. Except to buy Matt's book. Feedback this week is for Podcastle, episode 248. Bleaker Collegiate presents an all-female production of Waiting for Godot by Claire Humphrey. And boy, did this one cause some opinions. 
Bartok said, I genuinely hate it when people quibble about whether something is science fiction or fantasy, but here I am doing it. To me, if I have to ponder and rationalize to try to come up with a way in which a story could be considered speculative, it's just not. Maybe it's just too subtle for me, though it's not like I require swords and wizards to call something fantasy. Bottom line, I found this story absolutely mundane, in every sense of the word. If the story was in any way interesting on its own merits, I could be more forgiving, but I'm afraid it was my least favorite podcastle story ever. Which is harsh, isn't it? Anyway, Chemistry Guy said, not having read, nor ever heard of Waiting for Godot, I started into the play hoping it might shed some light on this story. I got about ten lines in, and decided that I'd be better off YouTubing the play itself. I made it through nine minutes before pulling out. I like surreal, and I like dark comedy, but something about these two stories just doesn't jive with me. The combination of weird and dark humour sounds like it should result in discomfort, but I was mainly bored. Nothing to be done about it, I'll just stand here and wait for something to happen to me. Anka Wonka said, I'm not sure what it says about we here in the forums, complaining that not enough happened in a story based on waiting for God out. Is that irony? To which Chemistry Guy replied, Yes. Finally, our own Liminal, who introduced the story, said, I like this story a lot and find it intriguing. Humphrey doesn't provide any answers, and she lets the gaps and silences in the narrative itself become as important as what is actually there. Does that work for everyone? Or for every story? No. But if you enjoy mysteries and an exploration of desire for the love of a particular person, I think you'll find enough in this short story to charm you. P.S. Beckett's work is funny, but in a dark and very bleak way. There is a tremendous amount of slapstick and vaudeville that should inform any decent production of nearly any of his shows that makes you laugh. There's a reason why Robin Williams and Steve Martin took on the leads for a Broadway production several years ago, and why Bert La, the comedy lion, was in the original Broadway production. As an aside, I had the privilege of seeing Sir Patrick Stewart and Sir Ian McKellen perform the show several years ago, and Liminal's absolutely right. There is a huge amount of comedy, dark as it is, in the play. If you possibly can, and I know they're touring again with that production very soon, go see it. It's extraordinary. Anyway... Thank you for those comments, denizens of Skynet's future home. If you have strong opinions about this story, or indeed any other, then please go and register at forum.escapeartists.net and let us know. It's one of the nicest forums I've ever been on, and that's because we have one rule. Be nice. If you didn't like a story, a reading, or a host, then don't fling cyber effluent. Just tell us why, and be honest, and open, and nice about it. Trust me, it's actually pretty easy, and you'll fit right in. Also, if you liked the story, the reading, or the host, tell us that too. We thrive on praise. Praise and money. Every cent goes to shore up the mighty walls of the podcastle and power the siege engine servers as they endlessly drive on, on towards the next piece of narrative gold. And you, my friends, can help them in their quest. So please, if you can, donate, and we'll keep bringing you the best in fantasy fiction week on week. Speaking of next week, it's time for me to go. Thanks to Dave and Anna for letting me play in the castle, Matt for the magnificent story, and Dave for the amazing reading. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then, this is Alistair Stewart for Podcastle, reminding you that the pointy end always goes in your enemy, and leaving you with this quote from one Sirio Forel. There is only one God, and his name is Death. And there is only one thing we say to Death. Not today. 
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. <laughs>